This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Doug Wilson. So he is a conservative, reformed, evangelical theologian and pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He's written a bunch of different books. And so really the, the I guess, scaffolding for today's conversation is his latest book called Mere Christendom. But he's also written Future Men, Reforming Marriage, Rules for Reformers, When the Man Comes Around, and a bunch more. And Future Men is actually listed on our 100 books, Every Modern Christian Man Should Read list. That's on our website. So if you have not gotten that list yet, just go to undaunted.life backslash book list. But in our conversation today, again, we used Mere Christendom for our discussion scaffolding for today. I did ask him, you know, how do you become a theologian and a pastor? But we talked about what is Mere Christianity, or sorry, not mere Christianity, here I am going all C.S. Lewis, mere Christendom, what is that, and why name the book that way, why, why kind of take that on, but really we dig into why secularism has not worked in modern society, specifically in the United States, and beyond that, why it's just flat out wicked, um, what a lot of people have done in the secular world is to make you believe that their worldview doesn't have religious assumptions, that it is actually religiously neutral. So we talk about how that's really ridiculous. We also spend time talking about what Christian leaders and Christian pastors have done to kind of aid in this, especially during the COVID lockdowns and the BLM riots and just some of the things that were done, kind of this Ted Turk, you know, Ted Turk, (laughs) Ted Talk uh, churches, these at the movies approaches to everything and how basically that doesn't lead to a deep level of gospel understanding standing in deep theology. And then we talked about the difference between a theocracy and a theonomy. But one of the big things we talked about today is Christian nationalism, because everybody's using Christian nationalism. They're either using it as a cudgel by which to, you know, punish patriotic American Christians, and other people are using it as a badge of honor, even though they don't exactly know what it means, and it turns out to be more nationalist than it does Christian. We talk about civil disobedience and how that kind of works in light of Romans 13 and how people were using Romans 13 really inappropriately during the the COVID lockdowns and things like that, how it is actually uh, a good thing to submit to God and that would allow you to resist tyrants. We talk about modern (laughs) Christian pastors and kind of how they build sermons and how modern worship music and kind of that squishy worship music that's not very Psalms-like doesn't really lead to deep theology, doesn't serve people well. But we also get into, you know, how men and women are treated differently by pastors and how it really doesn't set men or women up very well. And then at the very end, I asked him about all the controversies he's been in, and he's been in a lot. He stepped in it a lot. Out of all of those, which was the one that was like the funniest to him, the one that he just thought was so hilarious that he was in the middle of. So I really liked his answer to that as well. I really enjoyed my time overall with Doug Wilson. So without further ado, let's get into it. Doug Wilson, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Good good to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, I've been wanting to have you on for a while now. You've been a very uh, highly requested guest for the show, so we're glad we were able to take that out. But for people that are not familiar with you, we're going to find the nice soft place to land. You are a theologian and a pastor, so I'm assuming when you were four years old, you know, playing out in the woods, that that's not what you were thinking you would end up being. So (laughs) what's the short version of the story be of becoming a pastor and theologian? Yeah, the, the short version is that I was planning on being in ministry, but it would be literature ministry like my father was, um, mm-hmm. running Christian bookstores uh, in college towns. That's what I thought I was going to do. So after the Navy, I was going to go into the University of Idaho, and uh, a small church plant had started up. I, was, I played the guitar, so it was a Jesus people type of thing, and mm-hmm. I played the guitar, so I was the song leader. And about a year and a half into it, 
the man who was doing the preaching announced to everybody that he had gotten a job in another town and he was going to be gone by the next Sunday and good luck, everybody. And uh, I was up front with the guitar. So, <laughs> so that's, uh, so I, pre- I preached the next Sunday and it was a fledgling church, just less than two years old and had about 30 people in it. And so I just began preaching, uh, uh, but I hadn't, we labored hard to get someone else to come and take the take the pastorate, but couldn't find anybody. And mm. the church started church started growing, and that's what happened. Okay, so that was almost like your your Cincinnatus, your George Washington moment. You were the <laughs> reluctant leader of everything that was happening there. So that's very very interesting. Well, I don't want to waste a whole lot of time today because I want to really dig into your latest book, which is this book. It's fantastic. It's called Mere Christendom, and so it's your latest work. You bring up really a bunch of different important and interesting topics, which could be an entire interview or an entire other book, but we're going to use yeah. this as our guide for the interview today. So to the audience, if you hate hearing me read out loud, you're going to especially hate this episode because I'm going to read a bunch of your quotes back to you to get a little bit more context. <laughs> and I'll start with this one, but if All we right. want deliverance, we must call upon him. That's capital H him. We must name him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The framework for doing this is what I am calling mere Christendom, and hence this book. So just generically, 30,000-foot view, why did you write this book? You know, what chord are you trying to strike with it? And then if you could, define mere Christendom for us. Sure. Uh, what, what I'm trying to communicate to Chris, Christians is that the secular experiment has failed. Okay, uh, the idea that we can govern ourselves without reference to the transcendental reality that is God is a pipe dream. Uh, so, uh, after World War II, when the classical liberals, meaning secular liberals, said, "Well, we can have a decent, orderly society without reference to God. We don't have to name Jesus. We don't." We don't have to be explicitly Christian to have all the values that we hold dear as Americans. Uh, I would say, okay, how's it going? <laughs> look, mm. look, look around. We're chopping babies up into pieces. We have drag queens twerking for little kids. We have same-sex mirage uh, authorized by the highest court in the land. So apparently, it is not possible for Americans to govern themselves without reference to transcendental truth. We're screwing it up. And so what, I'm, what I want to uh, press upon Christians is that we have to return to Christ. The, the alternative is stark. It's Christ or chaos. Okay? okay. And we're, we're currently in the midst of chaos. Now, mere Christendom is sort of a zoom out take on um, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism, which was addressed by Stephen Wolf's book and other other folks, is simply talking about one country. So, uh, for example, Zambia is ostensibly a Christian nation. Uh, for, it's formerly a Christian nation. Uh, uh, Great Britain is a, is a Christian nation. There's Church of England. Uh, so you can have one church. You can have one nation that is um, formally Christian. But what happens when you zoom out and you have multiple nations that are naming the name of Christ? That's Christendom. So, so all right. that's that's kind of what we're what we're moving towards. Or that's like what to. we that's the goal that I would like to move towards. So think 
Christian nationalism, one nation at a time. But let's say in the medieval period, when you had all of Europe was Christian, but you had different nations, uh, those nations collectively were Christendom. Individually, uh, the, those nations or tribes were Christian tribes or Christian nations. Okay, so we're, we're going to dig way more into Christian nationalism here in a second because that's kind of a buzz buzz term that a lot of people use. And they, they use it as – some people use it as a cudgel. Some people use it as a badge of honor. I think they're all using it improperly. But I'm going to go back to something that you said. I'm already blowing up on my own interview. But you talked about classical liberalism. I feel like a lot of conservatives, Doug, have been almost romanced by this idea of, oh, this guy's just a classical liberal. And it's like, oh, that's okay. Like, yes, it's not like a blue-haired, you know, nose-ringed leftist. But they're – just a classical liberal. And, and we're thinking of that mm-hmm. in, in terms of being it positive. But you have several quotes in your book about the Darwinian society that we live in, where the mm-hmm. highest civic, I think the way you said it is the highest civic value has to be survival. And you don't just say secularism is bad or unfortunate. You say that it's wicked. So I, I feel like classical li- liberalism and the, the wickedness of secularism is all tied in together. No? Right. Yes. So uh, I want to make a careful distinction, however. I have no problem at all with free markets, let's say. Sure. I, I think I think free markets are, are a Christian construct. But I believe that we have to admit that they're a Christian construct. I, I don't want an invisible hand, um, unless it's the hand of the Lord Jesus. I don't want to turn everything over to an invisible hand who's going to govern things who knows how or why. Um I believe that if you have, if someone proposes a Christian classical liberal order, I'm okay. But if someone wants a secular enlightenment Mm. classical liberal order, I think there's death in the pot. Okay, fair enough. I appreciate that distinction. To to take the point even a little bit further, Doug, well, I'll read this short quote, and I think this will lead us into a further discussion. But here's the quote. One of the central tactics of our regnant secularism is to pretend that their foundational assumptions are religiously neutral and that we need not look at them. So something that I feel like has been a bit of a groundswell over the last several years is people realizing that leftism, you know, communism, socialism, whatever ism, you know, Black Lives Matterism, whatever – these are not religiously neutral. Like they have their saints, they have their sacred texts, they have, you know, their catechisms, they have all of those things. Mm-hmm. I guess it's not as ubiquitous as I would like it to be, that thought process. But I talk to me a little bit more about how we're supposed to pretend that this regular old secularism is not religious. Yeah. Basically on on this over the last few years, the liberals have really helped us out um by not only uh, they've transformed themselves from sort of pretend, uh, let's pretend to be neutral and calm and collected, and you religious types are the crazy ones. Uh, when you look at how they deified George Floyd after the in the Floyd riots, well, well, that's saint worship. <laughs> that there, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them leaving baskets of fruit and lighted candles in front of the portraits of, of George Floyd, uh, and then the climate change hysteria is in, it's a cult, it's a cult like thing, uh, mm-hmm. and given the given how unsupported it is by the science, it it's frankly a cargo cult. It's just like a a religious frenzy. And I, I don't know how to account for the behavior of multiple grown-ups um, 
in this uh, the, in the COVID panic, COVID lockdown, all of this uh, amounts to a religious hysteria. Not only religious, but religious hysterics, and um, and that has sort of displayed to Christians the religious nature of what they've been selling us for the previous decades. The mask, the mask came off. Yeah, I would certainly say that. It's it's funny you even use the term grownups, and I had to hold back a chuckle because it's like when you see these people acting out in the ways that they do, like right. it's not even just about uh, etiquette. Because, right, yeah, it, is, it, is it showing high etiquette to scream at somebody while they're having dinner? No, of course not. But it's, no. it's childish behavior that comes from a worldview that is devoid of any type of judgment and any type of standards. But, you know, we don't want to get too far off into that. I teed it up just a second ago, but let's talk more about Christian nationalism. So sure. because people misdefine it so much, I know you've already kind of defined it already. Let's define it again. But talk about how it's used. So I talked about how leftists will use Christian nationalism as, okay, if you don't support the BLM riots and if you don't riots and if you don't wear a mask, then you're a Christian nationalist somehow. Or if you're basically just a proud American that also goes to church, you're a Christian nationalist and that's bad. But then on the other side, you have Christians that and conservatives that want to wear that badge proudly, but they're they're I guess they're going a little bit farther overboard to the nationalism side and forgetting the Christian part. Uh, but, you right. know, it's used as a cudgel against patriotic Americans and it's used as a cudgel against just normal people. So mm -hmm. let's have a deeper discussion about Christian nationalism. Sure. Um, I'm not I'm not wanting to try a novel experiment of making America Christian. What I want to do is make America Christian again. Okay. Um, right. So uh, this is not uncharted territory. We've done this before. So uh, America was founded by Christians at the Constitutional Convention. Out of the 55 men there, 50 of them were Orthodox Christians. At the When the Bill of Rights was ratified, out of the 13 colonies, nine of the 13 had official relationships with Christian denominations. Connecticut, for example, didn't, and up, up, some of them, up to and including official establishment of a denomination. The uh, Congregational Church in Connecticut, for example, remained tax-supported, the official church of Connecticut, down to the 1930s. Uh, excuse me, 1830s. 1830s. Um, and what that means, so what that means is, now I, I want to be careful here, because I'm not a fan of established denominations at the federal level or the state level. I don't think it's a right. good idea, but it's not an unconstitutional idea, <laughs> right? Sure. Because because the people who ratified the Constitution were doing it right in the, you know, they were, that's what they were pursuing. Up till in 1892, uh, there was a court case uh, that went to the Supreme Court uh, exquisitely named Holy Trinity versus the United States. Um, and that was because uh, there was a lawsuit that involved a church named Holy Trinity. Um, and the thing that's interesting, there was a skirmish about whether um, this church could call a British minister, uh, a foreign mm -hmm. national, to be their minister. And there was a court case surrounding that. And the Supreme Court handled that in a in a common sense way. But then while they were at it, they, the Supreme Court said, while we're on the subject, 
let's remind everybody that the United States is a Christian nation. Okay, This is the majority opinion of a Supreme Court decision, 1892. Now, I was born in 1953. Okay, uh, that, that was just a mere uh, 60 plus years before I was born. And if you flipped it over, uh, basically, with us speaking now in 2023, we are farther away. You and I are speaking farther away from the day I was born than that court decision was from the day I was born. Okay. The point is, it wasn't that long ago. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, what I want to do when, when I say that I want us to affirm Christian nationalism and return to this, the, the left freaks out and says, you want to do a handmaid's tale. You know, you want women wearing right. scary, scary red dresses and being relegated to breeding, breeding only. And, um, you know, you've got that kind of hysterics. And no, I, we weren't living in a, in a totalitarian hellhole in 1895, three years after that decision. It, sure. it was just a, it was an ordinary kind of thing. Now, what I mean by it, is I want the government of the United States to recognize the truth of the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> That's what it boils down to. I, I want our I want our government to acknowledge formally, publicly, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that this has ramifications for the foundation of our law. All right. Right. So, our, our the American the Anglo American common law tradition is a Christian tradition and has been Christian going back to the time of King Alfred. Um, And I think we simply should recognize that and lean into our heritage. That's what I'm talking about, leaning into our heritage. I'm not talking, I'm not talking as though America is a pagan nation that has never seen any Christians and that we, we uh, 10 Christians just got off the boat and we're trying to persuade you all to become a Christian nation. We we have Christianity embedded in our in our customs, our mores, our history. You know, all all I want to do is go back to that. The last generation, from well, from the time of Earl Warren down, uh, has been disastrous. I think that it's it's hard to argue against that, especially if you look at the the founding creeds and documents of our great universities and how they oh, were, yeah. you know, struck through with scripture. And their their point was <laughs> trying to create disciples and everything else from there. What what comes from a, a conversation like the one you and I just had in your answer there is people are worried about theocracy, theonomy, even though they don't know what these words mean. But right. let's talk a little bit about that. You know, what is sure. a theocracy versus a theonomy? Do you support one over the other? Should we be fighting for one over the other? And how does that work within kind of the confines of Christian nationalism? Okay, great. One of the first things I want to point out in this discussion is that everybody advocates for theocracy. Everybody wants a theocracy. The only difference between the different positions is which God they want to be the God of the system. Hmm. Right. So uh, I would say theocracy is an inescapable concept. It's not whether, but which it's not whether you're going to have a theocracy. It's which Theo is going to be the Theo of your theocracy in Saudi Arabia. It's Allah in, in contemporary pagan America, it's Demos, the people Mm. democracy. Uh, But so the, the Theos, 
which is simply the Greek word for God, the theos of the system is the point past which there is no appeal. Okay, when when you when you get to Allah in Saudi Arabia, there's you can't say, "Can I talk to anybody else up there?" You're, you're right. You've uh, you've come to the end of your line of appeals. When in a in a pagan system, a secular humanistic system, when you get to the highest legislature or the highest court, that you're at the you've exhausted your appeal. The right. Christian, your line of appeals. The Christian wants to say that a Christian with an open Bible can stand before all men on lawless thrones, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did to Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, our God can deliver us, but be it known, O king, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your statue. And they were appealing past Nebuchadnezzar. And that that is a foundational tenet of Christian political theory, is that Caesar is not God. A foundational tenet of the Lord's teaching is that we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, Jesus is holding a coin when he says that. And how do you tell what belongs to Caesar? Well, if he manages to get his picture on it, it's his. It's it's lawful to give it to him. Well, Jesus also says, render to God the things that are God's. Well, how do I tell what God what's God's? Well, what has his image on it? Well, we do, all right? Therefore, Christian, Christians are forbidden to render their bodies and souls to Caesar. All right, we, we must render ourselves, our families, our children, to God and to God alone, okay? Now, what's happening in this secular uh, utopian hellhole um, is that the secularists are laying claim to absolutely everything. We own you. They're, right. they're saying, we, we own you. Uh, we can tell you to inject stuff into your body, whether you know, want it or not. We can bundle bundle your head up in a face diaper. We can lock you down for a couple of years. You are, you are so many chess pieces that we can move around the board at will. Mm-hmm. And, and the tragedy is a lot of Christian pastors went along with that, rendering to Caesar, right. rendering to Caesar that which was God's. So... I love that. That actually leads to a further discussion about civil disobedience, because when you talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was civil disobedience against, you know, the the rulers of the time that they were living. And we're in this post-COVID world now. I say post-COVID. There's all these things in the headlines about, hey, they might bring masks back and hospitals and and, uh, airplanes and all that. And they can kiss my Irish butt if they want to do that. I can tell them that much. But during that time, I know 2020 seems like forever ago, Doug. But during that time, Christians who did not want to go along with the mandates, didn't want to shut down their churches, didn't want to demand that their congregants get get the jab, you know, everybody threw Romans 13 at them. So Romans 13, right. you're not doing this or you're not being loving of your neighbor. And, you know, the new variant is you don't love your neighbor variant and, and all those types of things. But my favorite quote from mere Christendom is this quote here. There is a vast difference between the dutiful Christian citizen and the craven Christian who cites passages out of context in order to justify a continuation of his cowardice. I absolutely love that. And one of the things that you use that quote to set up is an argument about how uh, resistance to tyrants actually is submission 
to God. So let's talk a little bit about civil disobedience, because I know there are a lot of Christians that aren't natural fighters. Like they, they don't want to get into arguments. They don't want to have debates with people. They, they're just like, look, if you want me to put a mask on before I go into Target, fine. I, I, need to, I need to get eggs and bread for my family. But at some point, there's got to be a line where every Christian is like, no, we're, we're not passing this. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's that's absolutely correct. And I would, if we just go to Romans 13, uh, it says, I think, three times in that passage that the civil authorities are God's deacon, God's servant. I think it used diakonos twice, I think, and then another word for servant um, another time. So the, the civil magistrate, it says, is God's servant, God's slave. Okay. And that slave, that servant is appointed to reward the righteous and punish the wrongdoer. Okay? Mm. So um, the the servant of God, which is the civil magistrate, has God's marching orders, and God's marching orders to the civil magistrate have been published so that everybody can see what they are. Okay, we all, we all know what the civil magistrate is supposed to be doing. Now, we have gotten to this, in this clown world of ours, we've gotten to the point where the civil magistrate is punishing the righteous and rewarding the wrongdoer. They've, uh, in Isaiah 5.20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute light for darkness and darkness for light, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. So what ha- what's happened is they've inverted all moral ca- categories. So, for example, in California, uh, when the magistrate, shut down churches as being non-essential services, but kept open pot shops, strip clubs, and abortion clinics. Can, I would say to a Christian pastor who dutifully shut down, I would say, mm. can you not see what they're doing? Can, um, can, can't you see that this servant, that the Lord, the master of the house, left this servant in charge? And can't you see that he's drunk? Can't you see that he's he's trying to burn the house down? Can't you yeah. see that he's he's beating the fellow servants? So um, when when the the fact that people just refuse to see that, ref, refuse to see that the uh, the magistrate had slipped the chain and was off doing crazy things that Paul the, the apostle Paul did not envision. All right. Now, some people say that, well, Romans was written when Nero was emperor, and so he was Nero is a bad dude. Well, the first five years of Nero's reign were really decent, comparatively speaking, because Seneca, the Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, was an advisor, uh, was involved in the government. After uh, Seneca lost his uh, position of control and influence. Nero went around the bend, but when Romans was written, uh, when Romans was written, the Roman Empire was still a force for stability, rewarding the righteous, punishing the wrongdoer. If you if you did bad things, they would deal with you. Um, and Paul is talking in that context. So if you here's one other thing that's important to note: when uh, when you want to understand what Peter means when he says we're to submit to kings and all those in authority, and what Paul means when we should recognize that the existing authorities are established by God. Let's look at their behavior. Okay. The Apostle Paul escaped from King Aretas at Damascus 
by being lowered lowered from the city wall on a basket. What what would we call that? We we would call that evading arrest. We would call that um, uh, running a roadblock. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so Paul uh, Paul evades arrest when Peter is locked up in jail by Herod, and the angel springs him. He walks out into the street. And then he goes to John Mark's house, checks in with him, and then disappears into the night. Okay, so the men who wrote the men who wrote those words were not hypocrites; they were apostles of the of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that the absolute craven do whatever they say has to be a distortion. And I feel like the pastors in this country and in in all these Western countries. <clears throat> they weren't being stalwarts against the the tyranny of what the government was trying to do. Um, and I think it was uh, go along to get along. It was a lot of pragmatic approach as opposed to a biblical approach. There's another quote from mere Christianity that says this. I think I've said mere Christianity on accident a couple of times and you didn't correct me, but it's mere Christianity. What are we to say of those Christian leaders who are masculine enough to want to be in leadership, but not biblically masculine enough to accept the assigned sacrifices that go with it? Now, to be fair, you were talking about something something else in terms of how men are set up and called into <clears throat> into the pulpit for different reasons. Some people want to be in to, to look cool and to have power and influence. But I feel like that relates to what you were just talking about, Doug, which is mm-hmm. you had so many people in the congregations that are looking to their pastors. And we'll, we'll talk more about certain types of churches here in a minute, in a minute. But they were looking to their pastors for some level of direction. And the direction wasn't just in the spiritual realm. It was to how to act in a civil society. Like, do Mm -hmm. we need to be pushing back against this? Is it sinful for me to come to church knowing that there are elderly people here that are more susceptible to this particular, you know, sickness than I am? And I just felt like there were so many squishy cowards that were found out during COVID because it's like, look, you're not willing to fight the government on something like this. And then you start thinking about it's like, yeah, you're not fighting against the murder and slaughter of babies either. And so it's like, yeah, it kind of makes sense that you're going to be squishy on just about everything. Caesar will tell you whatever he wants to tell you, and you'll just bend over and take it. At least that's what it seems like. Yeah. And Jesus Jesus talks about this in the Gospel of John, where he distinguishes shepherds from hirelings. Okay. He, he says, when the, when the threat arises, the hireling runs. A wolf appears, and the hireling disappears into the tall grass. Because he doesn't have he doesn't have a life investment in the sheep, all right. the The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd sets a model or a pattern for all under shepherds. All under shepherds need to be standing in between their people and the threat. Okay, that's that's right. what has to that's what has to happen. So those Canadian pastors who went to jail rather than shut mm-hmm. down, that was exactly what a pastor ought to do. He needs to be standing out in front. And if you don't if you don't want that responsibility, then you shouldn't want the privilege of speaking to the people of God up front. Right. If if you want to be up front of the church giving your lecture, giving your sermon, giving your talk, then you need to be out front when the when the pinch comes. You need to be out front when the persecution is arriving. Otherwise, you're not qualified to be a pastor. And you need to resign your pastor. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And one thing that I've done on my show and I've encouraged people to do is look, if you feel this way about these topics, 
go set a meeting with your pastor, sit down with them and say, look, I know that if you start talking about abortion from the pulpit, that you're going to take some slings and arrows. I know if you start talking about these, these new lockdowns and all that, that you're going to take a lot of slings and arrows, but I will stand in front of those slings and arrows and I will provide you a little bit of cover. And then you get 10 more of your buddies that all set meetings and go in there and tell him the same thing to steal his nerves and to give him that level of resolve mm -hmm. to know that, Hey, I'm not just going to be doing something and be out there by myself. But then there was a pastor from Canada, uh, uh, Jacob Reum. Um, he was on the show and he talked about, yeah, I see your point, Kyle, but he should be doing that for you. Like, that's not yeah. your job. Now I was doing it from like a rah, rah, we got your back. Like I'll stand in the phalanx with you kind of Spartan way. Mm -hmm. But as a pastor, you should be stealing the nerves of the flock because guess what? I'm not going to have to give an account to God someday for how I followed my pastor. He, however, is going to have to give an account to mm -hmm. God for how he has shepherded me and the rest of the flock. And so, um, I, it leads to another quote here, and then I'll just tee you up to, to talk more about it. Another quote from the book. Salvation for nations is religious, and it needs to be religiously thick. We cannot be saved by a thin religion. We cannot be saved by a religion, the theological definitions of which will not stand up under five minutes of questioning. Etiolated, etiolated, that's a new word for me. Etiolated, yeah. you can say it. Uh, word. <clears throat> there yeah. it is. Faithy words have no saving power. Why would they? So what this leads me to think is these TED Talk churches, these these mega churches, and not all mega churches are bad. I've, I've talked about several in the show that are enormous, but they're gospel driven. They care about discipleship and they care about people and making real converts, not just getting people to raise their hands at a rock concert. But there are these churches that are a mile wide and an inch deep. Their theology is basically non-existent. They don't even have church membership. If you didn't show up after being there every Sunday for 10 years, they wouldn't even notice. They do these at the movies series and they try to get these people in the door. And then it has to be bread and circus for the rest of that person's life as a member of the church, because you know how you attracted them in the door is how you're going to keep them, right? But right. I feel like that plays into what we're seeing here is you have these pastors that have a lot of followers on Instagram and, and they've sold a lot of books, but at the end of the day, they're, they're not doing the pastoral duties. They're doing the influencer duties. They're more of like a business guru than they are a pastor. What, what say you? I'd say that's absolutely correct. I saw a great meme that was floating around. It's a, a, a pastor standing at a uh, in front of a barista's counter. And he said, I'd like a light roast, please. And she says, your, your sermons are basically t Ted talks with Bible, <laughs> Ted talks with Bible verses. That's um, it. <laughs> and so this superficial, this superficial Christianity, mile wide, inch deep, the, well, let's put it this way. Jesus talks at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who builds a house on the foundation of rock. Mm -hmm. A man who doesn't put them into practice is building on sand. He's not building on the rock. Now, those two houses side by side can have the same amount of curb appeal, mm -hmm. right? Um, and the, the one that's not built on a foundation can ha could have even greater curb appeal. When you're driving by, it could have more flourishes and the lawn's in better shape and, you know, all that sort of thing. But the the difference between the houses is not revealed until the storm comes. When the storm comes and, and persecution breaks out 
and your homeschool curriculum is now illegal, right? And nobody in your nobody in your house is vaccinated. And let's say you're guilty of other bits of wrong think. Okay. The the and but let's say you manage to do this while just being a typical evangelical, not you didn't belong to a diehard thing. And all of a sudden the crisis hits and you you say, I have to I have to find a church that can equip me for this crisis, for this hour. Are you going to seek out Joel Osteen's church at that time? Are you are you going to are you going to go to a big box church that is closed anyway? Are you are you going to what are you going to do? No, the chance what's happened is the churches like ours and other churches around the country that stayed open that that spoke the word of God in a way that was relevant to the current crisis. Those churches are exploding. Okay, what do we do with all the people? Here in Moscow, we're at the tail end of a large refugee column. I it's it's hard to explain what's happened in our community over the last couple three years. Uh, people chased here by their blue state governor, people who are, you know, it's pe- people who were let down by their pastors and elders, mm-hmm. people who, you know, it's just a, a trail of woe. But we've been greatly blessed. And it's, and I feel like we're sort of in the land of Goshen when the plagues are raining down on Egypt, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, our country's falling apart. And in many ways, we've never had it so good um, because people want strong leadership. These are times of crisis and they want someone who is going to take arrows for them. They want someone to tell them that this is what the Bible says you're to do, and here here are the passages, and here's the exegesis. You don't just bluster and and give them a plan of action because you're personally dogmatic. What you do is you show them from the Word that this is what God wants you to do. People need that. And one, Doug, I co-sign everything that you just said, but it it even starts before the pastor even goes up onto the the pulpit or stage or whatever they call it at that particular facility. <clears throat> it has a lot to do with the worship set that sets people up to hear the words. And you talk about modern so-called worship music and still one of the the most listened to and downloaded episodes of this podcast is episode where I talk about how contemporary Christian music is for women and effeminate men. It's very thin. It's, it's very vapid. And you have a short quote from Mere Christendom that says this, Christians need to stop filling their worship services with sentimentalist treacle and to start worshiping biblically in a very dark world. And so in that section, you talk about singing the Psalms and kind of, you know, there's the difference between the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And that doesn't mean spiritual songs are bad, but if that's all you sing, you're getting the repetition, you're getting the the emotional uplifting, right? You, you're emotionally manipulated by the chord changes and the the chorus for the 17th time and then the bridge and then the bridge mm-hmm. and then the chorus again. And then the the music and, and the, the lights and the smoke machine. Yeah, it's very emotionally driven. But when you leave the concert, you're left with nothing. It's, it's what I call spiritual Skittles. So you've eaten the Skittles, they taste amazing, and then you're immediately hungry again. But I feel like how we handle worship, Doug, in modernity 
is leading to pastors that it's kind of hard to go from a Hillsong concert set and then go into somebody that is like a fire breathing dragon bringing the word of God. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So the kind of music you're talking about, uh, although I will say there's a decent song here and there, but as a class, as a class, as a genre, we're talking about Jesus is my boyfriend music or worse, Jesus is my girlfriend uh, music. So the thing that's characteristic about the Psalms and when churches learn to sing the Psalms, when you, when you learn to sing the Psalms, one of the things that you you run into almost right away is how many of the Psalms are uh, praises to God, prayers to God, praising God, but uh, the Psalms contain enemies. Okay. If you, if you look, if you look through, modern worship music enemies are really hard to find right. okay if you go if you went through a 19th century hymnal enemies are hard to find um in the psalms enemies are everywhere um there are enemies in luther's a mighty fortress though this world with devils filled and saint patrick's breastplate has enemies in it but the psalms is just ch- the ch- psalms are chock full of enemies well, our world, the world that we're living in, is chock full of enemies also. <laughs> and right. when you when you start singing the Psalms, it puts iron in your blood. It gives you a vocabulary to know how to pray to God about what where you are. Because if if you're just if you think the Christian life is standing in a meadow admiring the sunrise, mm-hmm. uh, then you, then you're and you sing that way, and that everything is like that. Uh, you're not going to be equipped when the orcs come over the wall. I mean, absolutely not. And you're also not equipped to have a healthy fear of the Lord. That's that's part of the thing as well. Like God's scary and he, and he should be. That doesn't mean that he's not accessible. But when we sing about Jesus and think about Jesus as this wispy haired, soft featured Danish guy, we lose the fact that he was a Middle Eastern Jew, which scripture tells us he was not an attractive person, right? Mm-hmm. But this was a rough 30 something year old Jewish construction worker. Like he was probably dirty and like in terms of, you know, where they were at the time, he was constantly covered in dust and dirt. Like he wasn't this, this image that we get from certain people. And that kind of infuses our theology a little bit. It makes us think about Jesus in this way. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, We think about Jesus as going around and like carrying lambs and, you know, kissing people in the tips of their noses. But it's like, do y'all know he's coming back with like a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his leg and like a robe dipped in blood? It's like, this is, this is not that cutesy wootsy little boyfriend. And the problem for men, Doug, is we go in there, and that's why I try to appeal to a more masculine audience that mm-hmm. will walk in. They're alpha, that they're they're very driven, they're very virile, and they walk in and they see this set, and they don't have the emotional wherewithal to realize the reason I can't get into this is because it's homoerotic. It's because yeah. if we took out the name Jesus and inserted the name Jimmy, then it's going to be you know like someone singing a a dedication song to their boyfriend, and so like what is your I guess what's your warning to these churches that aren't man friendly? Because Doug, I've been asked for years now, how can I make my church's men's ministry better? And used to, I I would try to help them around the edges, but now I'm telling them, don't even have a men's ministry, make your church man friendly. And then men's ministry will just run throughout 
your entire congregation. The women will be more protected and more uplifted. The children will be more discipled and catechized and things will get better as opposed to throwing, you know, a chili cook off once a year and calling it good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the ministry to men and women both should be Sunday morning worship service, the preaching of the Mm -hmm. word of God. That's the, that's the main focus. Now here, there are different ways to illustrate this, but I think the, I think the evangelical church has got a serious problem with this. If you go to an average big box evangelical church on Father's Day, you can expect to see the men kicked around the sanctuary. Okay? Um, men, it's time to step up. It's my time for you to man up. I can't believe that some of the, some of the young ladies in here can't pray the Lord's Prayer because the words our father stick in their throat. You know what? Why they can't do that? Because the kind of dad they had. You're that kind of dad. You have to stop being that kind of dad. Just try to imagine doing that to the women on Mother's Day. That would be a bloodbath. <laughs> it would be a total bloodbath. The, the reason men are put off by worship is because we chase them away. And we, we try to chase them away with a stick. And if they, if they come... If they're docile enough to be willing to come, it's because someone got them on their meds or they're, they're cowed by their wives and they just want to sit in the back row and be left alone. And then they mm-hmm. scoot out as they scoot out as soon as they um, have an opportunity. Uh, we have, we've made church the most male hostile environment. And that in the contemporary world, that's saying something. Right, sure. But, but the the church pioneered it before corporate America began thinking in terms of toxic ma- masculinity. The church pioneered that. The evangelical church pioneered that. So um, a couple of good books that I could recommend. One is written ironically by a feminist named Ann Douglas, and it's called "The Feminization mm-hmm. of American Feminization of American Culture." Yeah, and she she does a marvelous job explaining. Uh, how the the drift away, the falling away from a, the Calvinist ethos of early America set us up for this, the feminization of American culture. And then Leon Podles, P-O-D-L-E-S, wrote a book called The Church Impotent, The Church Impotent. Mm-hmm. And he undertakes to explain why it is that church in the West, uh, he's speaking of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism in the West is so inimical to men, okay, and and why men don't go. Uh, and his thesis, which I think um, is quite uh, uh, how, how is it quite compelling to to me, is that um, the in the West a form of piety de- developed where uh, the the church is the bride of Christ. So corporately, we are feminine. And cor- and the Lord Jesus is the bridegroom, and we are feminine uh, corporately. So it's appropriate for the church to sing a hymn that is the church is the bride. But what happened was in the, um, uh, in the Middle Ages, in the West, that piety was individualized. So uh, you you began uh, you began speaking and praying in your personal devotions, like a bride preparing herself for her husband, 
well, the women, the women could do that, but the men sure couldn't. <laughs> right. Okay. And so they said, deal me, they said, deal me out. Uh, or you've occasionally ran across a man who was good, was good at it, at it. And, um, and that was another different kind of problem. And I think what we've seen is we've seen such a lack of true godly, biblically based masculinity from the pulpits. And this is something that you talk about in future men, which is not the point of today's discussion, but that's another book that you wrote where you have the two dichotomies. You have the incredibly effeminate, and then you have the, the counterfeit. So the counterfeit masculinity being the, you know, four wheel drive trucks and, you know, I'm going to run in the mud and I'm going to chase women and drink whiskey and smoke cigars and blah, blah. And as you know, my pastor friend, Joby Martin says, it's like, that stuff's make, that stuff makes you awesome. It doesn't make you a man though. Like, and it's just kind of one of those things like, yeah, that's, that's, exactly how it goes. Now, I wonder, I may be drawing a correlation here that isn't super related, but is our discussion, Doug, about how the church has spoken in the culture, how the church has operated congregationally or, you know, as, as a corporate environment, does that get into a discussion about the dichotomy between what you talk about in terms of a cold law and a hot gospel? Because I feel like when you go into a lot of these churches, there are some churches that are really hot on the law and they love pointing out the things that are wrong with people. But then there are other churches that don't ever want to point out the law because the law is icky and mean and judgmental sounding and not Christ-like somehow. And the gospel message that they give is so just absolutely vapid and like, it's just nothing. It's not a real full-throated robust version of the gospel. Does that work in here? Cold law and hot gospel? Yes, very much so. Um, okay. A man, uh, basically, there's a difference between telling a man the truth straight up the middle in a cold, matter-of-fact way, which men will take. When, when I'm telling a man that he's got to, look, man, you've got to stop behaving this way. You're destroying your life. You're, you're going to ru- ruin your marriage. When I talk to him that way, when I give him a Dutch uncle talk, I'm respecting him as a man, right? Right. I'm, 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 uh, treating him as though he has dignity and agency and responsibility. And that doesn't he does. mean you, and all you're which, doing, Doug is acknowledging that. Right. Right. And I'm, I'm coming to my a brother and I'm saying, man, you have to stand up straight. You have, you have to take, you know, um, but there is, even though it's a rebuke or an admonition, I'm respecting him. I'm respecting his dignity, but in the tearing down of men that's hap- happens in the evangelical world, it's not that he's sinning that's the problem. It's his masculinity that's the problem, right? He, his masculinity is being treated as the thing that we really have to get rid of. Um, mm-hmm. your, your problem is that you sometimes think your wife is wrong. Well, is it possible that she might be? <laughs> right. Right. I, re- I remember hearing one time uh, a woman who moved to our church uh, they they joined the church, and one Sunday, I said uh, in the in the pulpit, I said, "Now here's an area where you wives sin." Okay, and it was like, "Whoa!" Yeah, <laughs> she. It was like she sat up straight, and was like, I've not heard this kind of thing before. Oh, he can see the what has happened in the evangelical world is because the pastors have kowtowed to the women. They have left women pastorless. There's no spiritual guidance. Uh, so the men are affronted and insulted and chased away. And the women are flattered and left without guidance. 
And the end result is everybody is at sea. Everybody's Mm -hmm. lost. Uh, The sheep are all over the mountain. And the shepherds are just, you know, they've got an Instagram account that, you know, sending out pictures of the coffee and the, and the Bible study they had this morning. And I feel like it does such a disservice to women, obviously, as you pointed out, and how they view themselves because they will almost deify themselves. And then the men feel like, you know, obviously men get more of the brunt of all the blame and we deserve it because we've been given a, a important, different calling than the women that is somewhat more substantive. But at the same time, when you look at your wife as somebody that is infallible, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, it must be a me problem. That's not just bad for you and your own psyche. That's bad for your marriage. It puts way too much pressure on her, especially if she's bought into the lie that there's nothing that's wrong with her either. And so, yeah, you you were, I guess you're a fan of stepping in it. You, you like to step in <laughs> it and just kind of see what happens. And you know what? Uh, you, you've already given us more time than what we had bargained for today. So I'll make this the last question of the day. If you Google your name, or if you go to your Wikipedia page or do any of those things, you're always stepping in it. You're always hitting the hornet's <laughs> nest. There's always some sort of controversy about something that you've yeah. said. And, you know, whenever you do your, was it, uh, with the stuff you do in November, like no, yeah, no, no quarter November, no, like yeah. all those types of things, like you're, you're just getting after it. And, and I like that because it's like, I don't care about people that have opinions. I care about people that have bold opinions because if you have a bold opinion, that typically means that you have some ways to substantiate your position and that you're ready to give an account for that or an apologia as it will. But for you, I'm curious, is there a controversy that has befallen you throughout your career that is like especially funny to you because I'll, I'll do stuff. I'll say stuff on my show and people react negatively to it. And I'm like, I'm so amused by people's positions on it. I just find it very, very entertaining. Is there one particular that sticks out for you that the, that's like, this is so rich. I love it. I would say the one, the one that sticks out, maybe it's because it's the most recent one. Um, mm. But it, it's really a good example of this is I've been teaching these things on, on life between the sexes for my entire ministry and I've written books on it and stuff. And routinely I've been attacked from the left on it. Um, where I'm attacked for being a misogynist and being patriarchalist and all of that. But recently, uh, just within the last year, I've been getting attacks from the right also simultaneously accusing me of, of being a feminist. So, uh, <laughs> um, the, so basically, uh, what I call that when people are attacking me from the left, for being misogynistic and a patriarchalist and people are attacking, attacking me from sort of the uh, manosphere, right? Where, you know, they are chewing tobacco is sort of the apex of masculinity or something. Um, Mm. When they, when they attack me, I'm being attacked from both directions simultaneously. And what I call that is a sweet spot. Um, That is, that means that, I think that there's some sort of balance going on. I believe that men sin, and I believe that women sin. And I believe that men sin in distinctively masculine ways, and women sin in distinctively feminine ways. And a pastor, a pastor job, although pastors are all to be men, uh, they're not to be men because they're, they're hired attorneys for the men's side. My job as a pastor, my job as a pastor is to speak for Christ, not to speak for the men. Okay? I can speak speak up for the men when Christ does. I can speak up for the women when Christ does. And how do I know that? 
Well, it's in the word. It's got to be exegetically uh, derived. So that would be the um, the most ironic um, the the most ironic uh, controversy I've been in. Well, and there is the age old wisdom that if you're not taking criticism from different people, you're probably not being bold enough. And that definitely applies to your Christian life. If you're not actually feeling some level of persecution, it might be because you haven't got a hot enough gospel, but we've gotten everywhere in this conversation. I'm very, very happy with how it's gone, but have we had enough fun, Doug, for you to oh, come back on at a later date to talk about yeah. future men? Cause there's so much in that book and we couldn't get to any of it. Yeah. Happy to do it. Okay. Well, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, that's, that's good. All right, Doug Wilson, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Doug Wilson. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the links I've got for you today, I've got a link to Doug's blog and my blog, whatever that is. That's his website. You can go check that out. And a couple of Amazon links so that you can buy a copy of Mere Christendom and also Future Men. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah